0: Today we'll be reading from 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 18, to chapter 4, verse 6. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does.
1: Well, good morning, Kingdom Vineyard. As always, it is a joy to be with you, even if only digitally at this time. Now. You may have noticed from this morning's scripture reading that there were some odd bits. Bits about Jesus descending to the dead, even about apparently Jesus preaching to the dead. These things are a bit strange. One of the real benefits of preaching through an entire book of scripture is that we don't have the liberty of avoiding the parts that make us uncomfortable. We get to read the awkward bits as well as the friendly bits. And today, we have a bit of an awkward bit. In fact, we have a weird bit. And what is more, it's a weird bit used weirdly. In this section of 1 Peter, which Toby dealt with wonderfully two weeks ago, beginning at about chapter 3, verse 8, which we didn't read this morning, Peter starts to give specific advice for how to suffer. If you're going to suffer well, make sure it's not because you were an idiot. Good advice. Make sure you do it by trusting in the Word, and Peter quotes Psalm 34 to back this up, and then he finishes at chapter 3, verse 17 with these words. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. So far, so good. This seems to me like a pretty good common sense. But, of course, he goes on the next verses to say, chapter three, eighteen and 19, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We're all on board. Then verse 19, In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And then in chapter 4 verse 6 he says, "...for the gospel for this purpose has been preached even to those who are dead." In other words, the reason Peter gives for why it is better to suffer for good than for evil is because Jesus hung out with dead people, and Peter expects us to respond to this information as if it makes perfect sense. Now, this is the weird bit used weirdly. What is Peter on about? And where did Jesus go, and what did he do there, and why on earth is this the next logical step in Peter's argument? If you're curious at all, these are questions about a doctrine that is commonly called the descent into hell, and Peter's words in 1 Peter 3 and 4 raise three big questions that I'm going to try and address this morning. First, what is the descent into hell? Second, what does the descent into hell mean for us? And third, why does Peter use it in his argument in the way that he does? That's pretty straightforward. Let's dig in. So first question, what is the descent into hell? Now, back when I was a pastor, I used to have my congregation try to read the cycle, recite the, the Apostles' Creed every week on a regular basis, as much as we could. We didn't always make it, but I wanted us to. The Apostles' Creed begins with, I believe in God, the Father almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's the main part of the creed. That's the Jesus part of the creed. Now, um, by far, the phrase in the creed that generated the most questions in people, just kind of coming up to me wondering, was this business of he descended into hell. Now, we should be clear that this is an established Christian doctrine. It's a doctrine and a doctrine for which the, the primary passages of scripture that back it up appear to be these passages in 1 Peter 3 and 4. So, what do we mean by it? I want to talk about it in maybe three ways. First, as cosmology, and then I want to talk about baptism, and then I want to talk about the pre-kingdom of God lost. That's a complex phrase, we'll get back to it. So first, what about cosmology? Well, cosmology is the business of how we arrange our world, how things are and where they're placed. For the Hebrews, there was the earth, where we are right now, and then above the earth, there was the heavens, which was kind of God's realm, there's a firmament and some other things. And then of course there's the pit, which is below the earth, which is the place where the dead go. And this place is called Sheol, which if you've read your Psalms will know Sheol is the common phrase for the place of the dead. So when Jesus died, and we believe that he really did die, he went naturally to the place of the dead. He paid a visit to Sheol. Now, of course, in the Greek and Roman world, this place, this Hebrew place came to be confused a little with the Greek underworld of Hades, or hell. So when we say that Jesus descended into hell, in a scriptural sense, all we mean is that he descended to the place of the dead, or Sheol, not really the place of Dante's literary imagination. So you might want to separate those things out. Now, given this cosmology, that there's a place of the dead, the Sheol, uh, what does this descent into hell mean? It means, first and foremost that Jesus really died. This is very important that Jesus really died. He didn't pass out on the cross and then get rescued and healed later. He didn't switch bodies with either Judas or Simon of Cyrene, and they were the ones who were actually crucified, and Jesus kind of stood on the side and giggled about this. That's actually in some ancient texts. He wasn't suddenly revived by the cool air of the stone tomb, which is an actual theory, someone says. No, Jesus really died. His heart stopped beating, His brainwaves went flatlined. He was D-E-A-D, dead. This is very important. He descended into hell, the place of the dead. Now, this gets us to the second thing about Jesus' descent into hell, which is that it becomes a cipher for baptism, which we see even in the passage today where Peter says in 321, corresponding to that, what he means by this corresponding to Noah's flood, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus' actual death was a second baptism, one that you are now joined to in being baptized yourself. Jesus was explicit about this connection between his death and baptism when he was in his earthly life. Uh, Consider a passage like Mark 10, verses 37 to 39. And James and John have come to ask for thrones seated next to Jesus in his kingdom. No big deal. We just want thrones next to you, Jesus. They said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And he goes on. In other words, Jesus saw his imminent death as a second baptism, but instead of getting dunked into water and coming out washed clean, he would get dunked into the earth and come out a new being. This, again, is why the Noah passage is important. Noah passes through the waters of judgment, and also the Israel passing through the waters of the Red Sea marks a new beginning, marks a new life, and also marks a judgment. Judgment on the world in the case of Noah, judgment on Egypt in the case of the um, um, the Exodus story. They are removed, the bad guys are removed, so that God's new life can be made manifest and can thrive. So, the descent into hell matters for us because it points to the real meaning of our own baptisms, that we have died with Christ and that now we live with him. Third, and finally for this part of understanding the descent, he descended into hell means more than just that Jesus died. It also means he went somewhere and did something. According to Peter, he was preaching. The something Jesus did when he was dead was preaching, and specifically preaching to the pre-kingdom of God, lost. He spoke to all those people who died before the resurrection. Now, the reason for this preaching might become clearer when we remember when it is that Jesus descended into hell, namely on Holy Saturday. Now, this is the day between Good Friday, when he was crucified, and Resurrection Sunday, when he came back to life. So, Holy Saturday is that lovely little sandwich day right in the middle. Now, don't miss the fact, very important, that that Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath, and that Jesus spends that Sabbath resting in the grave from his work. He's keeping the Sabbath. And how does he rest, according to Peter? Why, he holds a synagogue meeting in the place of the dead. So in the same way that Jesus in life was in the synagogue every Sabbath day teaching people, preaching and teaching the Word of God, now he's sitting in the first synagogue of Sheol dropping truth bombs on the dead. As in death, so in life. Can't keep a guy away from the synagogue. Now I realize that this question, this may raise a number of questions for you about salvation, the dead, whether or not there are things like second chances for people who die without knowing Jesus... And we've got to be careful not to push a passage like this one too far into any kind of speculation. All the same, I'm not going to make it easy on you by giving you a simple answer. The best that I can give you right now is that, in the tradition of the church, the spirits to whom Jesus preached were all those who died before Jesus' message and kingdom came to earth. In other words, that Jesus preached to all those people who never got a chance to hear the gospel because there wasn't yet a gospel to hear. And so Jesus is just preaching to those who never heard. It's of interest to me that church art very often features Jesus coming out of the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. He's stepping on the doors of the tomb, and he's holding the hands of Adam and Eve as he comes out of the tomb. This is very common in church art, suggesting that Jesus has redeemed the historic lost in this action. That's an art move. I'm not sure about the theology of it. You can look it up yourself. So that's three things that the descent of hell is, descent into hell is one, Jesus really died, two, it is the anchor and ultimate point of our baptism, and three, um, Jesus was doing God's work while he was dead, announcing to the people before his time uh, the good news of the kingdom. Or, to put it another way, he's kind of extending his lordship throughout time. Let's come back to this in a minute. So I said there were three questions. Um, What is the descent into hell? And the second question was this, what does the doctrine of the descent into hell mean for us? We've touched on a few of these points already, but of course there is more to say. In the first place, the doctrine of the descent points to the scope of Christ's sovereignty. Many people are under the misapprehension that the devil is somehow in control of the underworld. Now, I, feel that they, I fear that their cosmology has been borrowed more from Zeus and Hades than from the Bible. No, for us, Jesus is Lord of heaven and of the earth and of those under the earth. There is no realm in any cosmology that is not under his sovereign rule. That's kind of what it means to be Lord of Lords. Just keep that in mind. Recall, if you will, the words from Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And when we say all, we mean all. He's Lord of all everything. Not some, not some places, and not even certain times, but all places, all times, and all people he's Lord. That's part of what we affirm when we say that he descended into hell. It means that he assumed the lordship of all realms. And if you think about it that way, that's quite a worshipful and devotional point. That there's no place you can go where Jesus is not king and not master. Well, what else does this doctrine mean for us? It means something for us relative to our own baptism. And Peter makes this explicit in the passage. So look again with me at 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5, where Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." Essentially, what Peter is saying is that you have been baptized with Christ, into Christ, and you have entered with Christ into His death, and in dying with Him you have received the promise of life. Now you should live that life. Paul. In Paul's words from Galatians 2:20, "I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. In baptism, I am dead with Christ and alive by His Spirit. Now baptism is that ceremony or the event which symbolizes and possibly even affects this unity with Christ in His death. So Paul continues on this theme in Romans 8:12 14. So then, brethren." We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. When we affirm Christ's descent into hell, we are affirming our own baptism. He has died, and that I have died with him. He has risen, and now I receive the promise of rising along with Him by His Spirit, that because of His death, I must, I absolutely must, lay aside the old life of the flesh even now. In Christ, we are called to new life, and we affirm this when we affirm that He descended into death. Now, this, then, is a critical meaning of the descent into hell for us, that it becomes a motive for our ethical action in the present. Christ has died for me. Will I go on sitting? Will I, now that he's done that, will I attempt to crucify Christ again for the flesh that I'm going to hold on to? May it never be. Instead, honoring the death of Christ, we now strive with all we have to live the life of Christ. And that's a heavy mandate on us. All right. Two out of three questions done. What's the descent into hell? Gave you some answers. Uh, What does it mean for us? Gave you some hopefully meaningful answers. And third question is, why does Peter use it in his argument the way that he does? Now here again is the situation of 1 Peter, which we should review momentarily. Imagine that you're a slave in the ancient world, you're at the behest of your earthly master, who may or may not be just, who may or may not be fair, who may or may not be kind. You're just, you're owned, and you have to perform your service. Now you, as a slave to this master, have also come to give allegiance to the Lord Jesus as your king. And now this new king begins to give you instructions. Among them are, serve faithfully. Don't be a jerk. Prepare yourself with every answer for anything that comes up. Make sure that if you suffer, you suffer for the right reasons. And Peter cements this advice by calling you to remember that your Lord also died, the just for the unjust, by calling you to remember your own baptism, which unifies you with him, and by suggesting, even hinting, that just maybe by suffering well in the same way that Christ suffered, you might save your master in the same way that Christ saved you. When you are suffering for Jesus, Peter calls you to flex your baptism. This little death, this little pain, is part of the pain that my Lord endured. And in the same way that my Lord's pain and obedience saved me, perhaps my pain and obedience by being joined to his pain and obedience in his descent into hell might just save my oppressors. Now, folks, I can't tell you how to do this. I can't even give you advice on how to do this. There's no hard and fast rules for how to suffer well, when to suffer, or when to flee for your life, which is a viable option. But Peter offers us an incredible challenge in this passage, and it's a challenge I suspect not many of us will have the courage to look square in the face. Am I willing to suffer so that someone else might have life? Our challenge. So, there you have it. Hopefully, what was a weird doctrine used weirdly has become actually a critical doctrine used compellingly. The descent into hell is good news. Christ is Lord of all, and our baptism binds us to his lordship over all, motivating us to write ethical action. So, I want to end today's sermon by talking for a moment about baptism. Uh, If you are new to this Christianity thing, I'd encourage you to find out more about what we mean when we talk about baptism. Uh, and figure out, and ask some questions. It's quite important, and so don't skip it over. Um, If you think of yourself as a Christian, and you've never been baptized, I think you need to reevaluate that position. Uh, Jesus commands us to be baptized as a sign and symbol of our allegiance to his kingdom, Uh, and I challenge you to give some serious thought to that. If you have been baptized, I want to challenge you to rethink the importance of that event for you. In baptism, you have died with Christ and are now alive in his spirit. This fact is terribly important and should impact almost all of your choices. It should impact your psychology. Uh, When you're feeling tempted, remember your baptism. When you're having a difficult time forgiving someone, remember your baptism. When you're frustrated with the church and kind of sick of people, remember your baptism. Uh, Your baptism is a powerful tool uh, to help us in the Christian life. At the same time, I think there is probably no more serious accusation I could make to someone than to say, hey mate, this is beneath your baptism. Uh, To call you out on living beneath the level of your baptism is a very, very serious charge, and it warrants a place of deep reflection and personal thought. So, I'm challenging you to live worthy of your baptism today, and by living worthy of it, shine as a bright light to reflect the Kingdom of God. I will pass things back to Jim and Rachel for them to pray at the end of this service. Bless you all today.